Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Denver United. Thanks for coming to worship God with us this morning as we turn the corner in the calendar and also in our church time to a new subject and a new series. This week, I lost myself in remembering probably the most formative year of my childhood. It was 1987, and the world came online for me that year. Many things happened where I began to discover not just what was around me, but what I thought and believed about it. You know, I I was 13 years old, and at that age, you start to have opinions, and all the parents of teenagers uh, know of what I speak. You start to differentiate from your parents and think things that you hadn't even considered before. Well, that happened to me that year, and the icon of that time was the most wonderful concert that I've ever been to. It was in 1987, it was the U2 Joshua Tree Tour. Now, I think that's one of the greatest rock and roll albums of all time. Top three for me. And the song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, caused me to be able to come to my mom and keep her from throwing out my rock and roll tapes. It was very um, important to me because Bono sang about Jesus, sort of, and, you, you know, they, they also got kind of, they went through the Zuropa thing and um, did what rock stars do. But clearly the guy, if he hadn't found him, at least I'm like, Mom, at least he's looking for him, right? I mean, that, so there's Striper, but can we just keep, because, you, you know, back in 1984, um, there was a great album called 1984 by Van Halen that anyone remember it? It had a little, um, do you remember the cover? The little like cherub smoking a cigarette? So all was fine. I was like, jump, that's happy. This is like, come on, mom. And she's like, well, okay. And then she saw the cover. That thing went in the trash. And so I had to preemptively protect my investment in the Joshua Tree. And that song helped me do that. Very important um, in, in the detente around secular music that emerged in my childhood home. But I got to go to the concert that summer, and I sat high in the third deck of Sullivan Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts, with 75,000 other people just enraptured at what I was seeing and hearing. And only much later did I realize the powerful, formative effect in my thoughts of the things that I heard that night. So I was like up there watching Bono sing that, And it never occurred to me that it could be any other way. Like, who needs theological seminary when you have the Joshua Tree Tour to inform your personal theology? And I never questioned it. Listen, I believed in the kingdom come, right? When all the colors naturally would bleed into one. That's what happens in the kingdom come. And I think a generation, maybe a whole culture, has found our personal and maybe our collective theology in pop culture more than in Jesus or his word. Now, I think those guys were looking, and I love the work that God's used them to do in the world. But it wasn't until much later that I came to rethink what it means to be one. That's our title for this morning. It's easy to mistake homogeny for unity, right? Meaning when all the colors or all the socioeconomic 
statuses or all the places along the generational spectrum will just bleed into one. And that which distinguishes us will just go away and we'll all sort of homogenize like 2% milk. And then we'll live with Jesus forever. There'll be no more tears, sorrow, death, or pain. We'll walk on streets of gold and we'll live happily ever after. That's the way I thought it was going to be. In John chapter 17, Jesus does a powerful thing. The whole chapter is a prayer. And in verse 20, he writes, My prayer, Jesus prayed, and John seems to have overheard, is not for them alone, meaning his disciples and their contemporaries in Jesus' generation. He said, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Interestingly, Jesus's prayer, which is the whole of this chapter, it reads like a vision statement. It's kind of like an info prayer, you know? It's like an infomercial. Have you ever heard anyone, pastors, give an info prayer? where you pray the announcements, you pray the building capital campaign, you pray all kinds of information, and you're listening and you're like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Wait, what? Oh, yes, Lord. I think Jesus might have known that, uh, that John was eavesdropping, right? There was some boundary dynamics with John and Jesus, you know, the whole leaning on the bosom thing, probably cultural, still seems a little um, touchy to me. John was young. Jesus um, gave him a lot of access. John was his self-described best friend, <laughs> like, like 14-year-old social dynamics red flag right there. Like, I'm going to let Jonathan call me his best friend. I think I'm going to refrain from appointing myself that position. But that's just me, right? This was the people with whom Jesus worked to establish his kingdom. Well, I think he knew John was listening in, and so you get kind of an info prayer, and that prayer reads like a vision statement. And Jesus' vision for the church is fascinating. He's praying for us. This is where you are, time-stamped in Scripture. He's praying for the future of the church that would bear his name. And his prayer and his vision for us wasn't that we would be doctrinally pure, legalistically righteous. It wasn't even that we would be holy or loving, though undoubtedly he wanted those things. And maybe they would flow from the headwaters of his vision. But his prayer for us and his vision for us is that we would be one. And that in our unity, the world would see a picture of the gospel lived out and on display. The question that this begs is, what does that really mean, unity? What is several weeks? And uh, it's called the Lord's Other Prayer. You know, the whole chapter is a prayer. And being that the Lord himself is praying it, I thought a catchy title was the Lord's Prayer. But that having been taken, this is the Lord's other prayer. Longer, less famous, powerful in its implication and mandate 
and perhaps in some ways reproof. A lot of different things have been done in attempt to answer the question of what does it mean to be one? What does unity in the church look like? Gathering around Jesus. I grew up in the 80s when my mom was throwing out my Van Halen records and my Led Zeppelin box sets. She was doing so at the behest of good people who were crusading for a return of America to its religious roots in the name of conservative political activism, right? Ralph Reed and the Moral Majority, Jim Dobson, and, and his call to millions of moms like mine to fight the good fight. And they did work for Jesus. I'm grateful for them. You know that book, Dare to Discipline, that would kind of put Dobson on the back? Let me just tell you, my mom, she dared. <laughs> she, she accepted the dare. And so there was a, an attempt at unity coming out of the increasing dispersion of American Protestant tradition. And that unity was given the term evangelicalism, or if you are of a higher brow, evangelicalism. It's just harder to say, and it kind of codes you as uh, of, a, of a sophisticate. And however it is that you said it, that was the tie that bound, and it reduced it to a few things like Jesus is the Son of God, the Bible is the Word of God, there is necessity to be born again. And in that, there was baked an implication. It's important for us to war for culture. And that looked like standing up for righteousness and claiming prayer back in our schools and advocating for the Ten Commandments statues that have been vanquished from a thousand courthouses to be wheeled back in. And it looked like throwing away your kids' Van Halen records and lots of other important particulars that powerful radio personalities told moms to do and they wanted to love Jesus and they gathered around that and at the core of it the glowing red hot center was American conservative politics and that kind of got baked in until we woke up 40 years have become all too indistinguishable is that what it means to be one there was another stream in the body of Christ in my time that picked a, a pet doctrine, not usually one of the absolute non-negotiables. Those are far too boring. Not even the interpretive issues that are one ring out on the bullseye target of theology, but more of like the tertiary layer. You might call those deductions, where you take interpretation of confusing, confusing passage A, and then interpretation of confusing passage B, and you say A plus B equals C. That C is a construction of theology. That's a deduction. And we camped out on deductions and divided the hell out of the church, like eschatology. Does anyone know what eschatology is? It's a nerdy theological word that has to do with what? The end times, right? Well, the, here's what we know. They're going to come. They're happening. The end is coming. Jesus said it. He also said the one that thinks he knows about it is wrong because I don't even know about it. If Jesus doesn't know about it, I think it's highly unlikely that an author, even having sold more than a million copies of his book, <laughs> has ascended to that knowledge. But what do I know? The eschatology of, of preference had to do at the time with the sequence of some of the confusing events. So you take passage from Revelation. I think we can at least agree that that's confusing, right? And then a passage from 
uh, Daniel, which is not confusing at all until it takes a turn for like the magical mystery tour, you know? It's like the first third of Daniel is, is, is like Abbey Road, and the last two thirds of Daniel is like the magical mystery tour. It's like, I am the Eggman, I am the walrus. What? What is going on? It's important, it's just confusing. We can just say what it is, it's not clear. The absence of clear is confusing, right? So you've got confusing passage A and confusing passage B. We had some smart people interpret them, mash them together and say, here's how it's going to happen. There's a sequence, a particular sequence of the, the tribulation and the rapture and Jesus' return and the millennial reign, whatever exactly that even is. These are going to happen in this sequence because we know what these things mean. And then that's all fine and good. Someone's got to interpret that stuff. But then we built a camp around it and said, these ones have it right. Those are probably going to hell. The chasm got wide and we chucked rocks at them and we called it unity. We're going to unite around pre-tribulation rapture. Is that what Jesus envisioned? In 1940, we were coming out of World War I. The country was fractured. People were poor. Hope was at a premium. The church was dividing between what we have referred to for half a century as mainline liberal denominationalism and whatever the little tributary coming off of that was. An artist named Warner Salman did something kind of Oppenheimer-esque. He didn't know the power of his, I believe, good-hearted contribution. Reports are the guy genuinely loved Jesus. He painted what's become known as the Salman head. Not the Jesus head, the Salman head, right? Have you seen it? Have you not seen it? No, I'm serious. Has anybody not seen the Salman head? I tested the tech team and they're all younger than me. Okay, a few haven't seen the Salman head. Now you have. So this thing is fascinating. He painted this. And the reason for it was unity. All right, this thing, the Salman head, had by the end of the 20th century, been reproduced more than a half a billion times. It went worldwide. It was enlarged and copies put in churches, like here. I mean, we got the Salmon head here, but imagine if there was no screen. It was just the Salmon head. You looked at it every week. That's thousands and thousands of churches. And it was made for home use pictures, and it was made in little wallet cards. Did anyone ever get that in Sunday school? I had one, a little wallet-sized card. I had like the little plastic thing of the pictures of my grandparents that my parents gave me. And then I had the Jesus head in there. And so I would show my friends, boldly proclaiming my allegiance to the faith. This is my grandmother. This is my little brother, like three years ago in school when he had the bowl cut. This is Jesus. <laughs> That's just the way it was. The Salmon head went everywhere. Powerful. The painting is said by one historian to have become the basis for the visualization of Jesus for hundreds of millions of people around the world by the end of the 20th century. A historian named Stephen Prothero wrote an interesting book called American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon, and he talks about Warner Salmon in this book. During the post-war revival of the 1940s and 50s, he writes, as Protestants and Catholics downplayed denominational differences in order to present a united front against 
the menace of godless communism, Solomon's Jesus became far and away the most common image of Jesus in homes, churches, and workplaces. Thanks to Solomon and the savvy marketing of his distributors, Jesus, listen, became instantly recognizable by people of all races and religions. Do you hear it? And so here's what we did. There was a goal of uniting the body of Christ and returning America to our faith roots. Righteous goal, especially in the face of atheistic and destructive communism. And so the global Christian world united and rallied around a picture of Jesus who looks like kind of a young Brad Pitt. Like Roman nose, tannable features. Like the Solomon Jesus looks like, I mean, he gets a little pink in the sun, but that, he's the guy that's like, oh, don't worry, it turns to tan. Guys like me immerse in sunscreen. And you try to give it to Solomon's Jesus, he's like, no, I'm good, it turns to tan. And it's annoying, because it does. He's like tan, a little ruddy, you know, like he went to Chatfield last week. (laughs) Guys like me are actually jealous of the Solomon head, because I don't ever tan, I just pink it. (laughs) And yet, here he is, in all his good-looking American glory. I think you get the point. Unity was sort of this. Hey, let's come together, all races. Generations, for sure. Socioeconomic classes, absolutely. Come together. Nations. Cultures. Come together around a Jesus. That kind of looks like us. You guys good with that? How many times has that been done in church? Right? Hey, we we want diversity. Absolutely. 2020, every white male pastor found a woman and a black pastor friend to come preach in their church. Every single one. And that's fine. That's good. We need more people who aren't old white men preaching in our churches. But the idea is, hey, we're not racist. We're diverse. We value diversity. Lots rewrote values to include that word in them. And here was the messaging. Let's come together. Can we all come together and do it my way? You guys good with that? Michael, that good for you? Does that, does that work? Nate, you good with that? Just come together and do it the way that 50-plus white men like to do it. Ladies, you all right with that? Okay, we'll just call it good. It's all right? Yeah, we all, we all got the Jesus head. We know what he looks like. We know what, clearly, where'd it go? <laughs> we know what he would prefer it to look like. We clearly know what he wants unity to be. Jesus, as he so often did in his prayer, opened a bit of a can of worms. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not unanimity. Unity is not conformity. And unity is not solidarity around a common cause. There is value in some or most of those things. And unity might at times express express itself that way. But at its core, Jesus' vision for his church is something else entirely. Revelation is where we're going. Chapter 7, this is 
this same John who was eavesdropping on Jesus and Jesus knowing all things, probably knowing that was going down, kind of prayed the info prayer. So teenage John's writing this. And now this is old man John marooned on an island as punishment for giving his life to serve Jesus and build the church Jesus saw. And he gets to um, peek in on Jesus one more time. So we sort of begin and end our documented accounts of John with um, sort of religious voyeurism, right? The first time listening in on his prayer, the second time peeking in on his preparations. Jesus clearly opened the door for it. John's seeing this vision of how the end is going to look. And he says, after this, I looked in there before me in this vision of kingdom come. There was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. What's fascinating about this is this is time-stamped post the end, right? This is after these people had been collected out of the world. It goes on to describe that they were the ones who were the martyrs, this particular gathering that John got to glimpse. They had fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. There they were in heaven. They were on like the the glassy pavement. They were around the throne of Jesus, it goes on to describe. So this is time-stamped early heaven. Make sense? Not late earth. Whatever all that exactly means. And John recognized that these people were different from the inhabitant, the permanent inhabitants of heaven, like the, the cherubim and the perpetually bowing elders around the throne and, and various other um, elusive inhabitants. These were humans. And the first thing John noticed in this description is that they were from every nation, tribe, and language gathered around the throne. As it turns out, all the colors didn't bleed into one. I think what becomes disquietingly clear in the face of our flimsy, self-interested unity is that our differences go to heaven. Our differences aren't a concession of earth. They're not a weakness that he has to compensate for in building his church here, that once we cross the great divide, just kind of go away. We all homogenize and look like the Jesus head. John noticed them foremost for their differences. The implications of this are profound. The distinctions among God's people, it would seem, are not a hindrance at all, but a value in God's eternal kingdom. He didn't create us for him and have to deal with the fact that we look different, that we prefer different foods, that we speak different languages. These aren't obstacles that get overcome and finally ended when all things are put to rights. These are part of the solution, not the problem. There's plenty of problem, but our differences, it would seem, are not one of them. Our differences go to heaven. Revelation chapter 21, later in this backstage glimpse of kingdom come, in verse 24, John saw the kings of the earth 
they would bring their splendor into the kingdom of God. Remember, it says, the kingdoms of this world at the end have become the kingdom of our God. In other words, God's kingdom subsumes all of those of this world. But their distinctions, those didn't go away. Watch what it goes on to say. On no day will the kingdom's gates ever be shut. There will be no night there. And listen, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. What's the glory of a nation? Have you ever traveled outside the U.S.? Have you ever seen people worship according to their traditional culture? When I was 20 years old, I spent a summer in East Africa, and the most memorable thing of that time was the worship. I grew up in a traditional church full of, it's a very old, white building, tall steeple, full of old, white, tall people that (laughs) did things one particular way. And as I've told you many times before, like, I mean, if you got like excited for Jesus, one hand to the waist is the code. If they ever went up here, like, the Lord better be returning, mister. And so to experience worship where people were free and dressed in colorful clothing and playing a variety of instruments and syncopated rhythm and layered vocal harmonies. It was glorious and the dancing and the expressions of joy. I called that cultural experience glorious when I came home. It says the glory of the nations will be brought in so far from being filtered out or homogenized in the mix so nobody's distinctive can offend anyone else for how different it is from the Jesus head. I grew up in Boston where my life and values coalesced. And I think Boston may be the most segregated city in America. Has anyone ever been there? Or did anyone come from that part of the world? I mean, it is, it is as distinct as the movies make it. Like you have, I lived on the north side of Boston and you have Cambridge and Somerville with educated people um, and lots of sobs back then. That was what the um, sophisticate crowd drove. And then on the south side, you had Southie. And, you know, that's like they all talk like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and, and um, drove cars from the early 70s. And then, then you had... Dorchester, which was the, the African-American neighborhood. And then you had, a, you had the Jewish neighborhood and you had the, the Irish neighborhood and the Italian neighborhood. And here's what they all had in common. They kept to themselves. They experienced a version of unity that was isolation. I mean, you could spend your entire life in Boston and never cross Hanover Street. You just didn't do it if you're Italian. seems that culture informed Jesus' prayer for us as though he had a sense of what was coming, looking ahead, praying for us. Now, he wanted us to be loving. He wanted us to be a lot of things. But his prayer for us, his travail before returning to the Father was that we would be one. And it's, it's as if he was praying against some cultural headwind that he saw gathering like a thunderstorm 
just on the other side of the front range that you know in 45 minutes is going to be pelting you with rain. It's like he knew that homogeny, isolation, was like a cultural centrifuge. As culture spins, as it progresses faster, have you ever been on the what is it, the tilt-a-whirl, or what's the thing, the roundup? Have you ever been on the roundup, like at the county fair? I don't know if there's still one at Elitch's. It's a, it's a ride where it's like a big cylinder, and you stand against it, and it spins around real fast, and the floor drops out, and you, you're thinking about the greasy food you ate and hoping that you don't hurl on the person and see how that happens with centrifugal force. And then it, the floor drops out, and you stick to the wall. There's like a, there's like a roundup when culture gets spinning fast and the centrifugal force, it flings us outward and it separates us like a mass spectrometer. Come on, science nerds. A mass spectrometer. Yeah, someone's got someone's to give me an amen for that. And it separates them out. That's a, that's a really good illustration that like three people appreciated, plus me. So I'm going to be the fourth person. I appreciated that. It's flinging it out it's into its component parts of society, right? Flinging the Italians over here and the Jewish people over there and the wealthy people here and the working class folks over there, separating us out. And it's like Jesus' prayer was, was a, a prophecy. It was a glimpse into the future. And it was a clarion call. And as the Lord put it in our heart to move into Denver and start a church, I pictured Jesus like flying into Boston and landing on top of Faneuil Hall and grabbing people from Southie and people from Somerville and people from the North End and people from Dorchester and pulling them together against that powerful centrifugal force of culture as it spins faster and faster, that they would be one. So what is it that galvanizes us? If it's not our common belief around the sequence of the events of eschatology, that, by the way, is a, is a quirky one to me. But whatever. We got to find something to say these ones, not those ones, like Jack Johnson put it, right? To gather around. If it's not tertiary theology or conservative politics, Maybe it's the amount of money we make or the way we dress. What is the tie that binds when Jesus is pulling them together? What's the hope beyond a fool's errand that a church could be one? It can't just be a symbolic victory. We're going to get together and be one more bumper sticker of diversity. Let's get a picture. What if we all put our hand in? That would be a creative one. And we get a picture of a circle of hands of different colors. What's the connecting tissue? What's the hope of it all? Revelation 7 continues. One of the elders asked John, these in the white robes, you know, they were from every nation and language, but they all had white robes on. What are they? Who are these people and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Their differences, their diversity went to heaven. Their commonality was that they were all in white robes. Revelation is all symbolism and imagery. The white robe we're just given. We don't exactly get a verse that tells us precisely what the dragon and the beast and that correlate to. Like half of 20th century Christian literature would never have been published if we did. So we had to give them, we had to throw them a bone, right? We have to have stuff to write about. But this one we do, this little symbol we get. I think it was pretty important to Jesus, so he just put the cookies on the bottom shelf. And he went ahead and had the angel tell John. John's like, I don't know, you know. The guy's like, okay, I'll tell you. Their differences come to heaven. Their differences aren't the problem, they're the solution. Their commonality, they're all wearing white robes. The white robes are the blood of Jesus washing them clean. Our unity is Jesus. We came from Colorado Springs to start this church. And Colorado Springs is a wonderful town where I have thousands of friends, cousins, aunties, and uncles in the Lord. And um, we came here to Denver where there was comparatively more need, where the church was fleeing like the plague. And I had people uh, once a week for my T-minus countdown year of planting a church, and they're like, oh, we're so proud of you and Mari. Why would you go to Denver? It's so liberal. (laughs) God bless them. I get it. But I think maybe I had that picture of Jesus pulling people from the edges of the roundup into the middle. There's no shortage of churches in Colorado Springs and elsewhere here that do respectable church really well. You know, I mean, God bless Greenwood Village. Rich people need church too. Remember the line in Pride and Prejudice, well, poor Mr. Darcy, the man can't help that he's rich. It's like, I mean, that's us. I tease myself. I live in Washington Park. But those, it's easy for us to build churches that look like trend cater toward our clientele, right? And then there's the cool churches. I, I'm not nearly cool enough to pastor a cool church. And some of you are like, yeah, but look at your sneakers. And I'm like, yeah, because I employ Risa. And I wanted <laughs> that little dopamine hit that happened this morning where Rice is like, cool shoes. And so I tucked that away for like a low self-esteem day when I'll pull that thing out. Like, Rice, I like my shoes. But you know, I mean, so we are a hybrid. We're not as put together as the put together church. It's not quite as cool as the cool churches, but I pictured a church that Jesus envisioned, far from perfect, but striving toward that singular glowing center. A church that is young and old and rich and poor and brown and black and white and urban and suburban and married and single and children and no children and cool and uncool and Democrat and Republican coming together as one. A church that is as Highlands as it is Highlands Ranch. Because, you know, those two can mock the hell out of each other. We had dinner in Highlands last night. I came home needing these shoes, feeling my uncoolness. They drape it on you. You wear it like a garment when you leave Highlands. And then I was like, but at least I don't live in Highlands Ranch. I I see a church that's like minis and minivans because they judge the hell out of each other. But Jesus' church is full of both. 
What's the tie that binds? I think what I've learned doing this work for 20 years is that unity is not the absence of differences. It's knowing Jesus together in the face of them. That's why what we're about is so simple. Living with Jesus, living in family, and living on mission. This week in our, or last week in our small group, um, that we, we devolved rather into them things and sharing their hearts with one another. And the men sat in the kitchen talking about politics. It was so prosaic. And eventually the fact that the former president was thrice more indicted this week uh, came up and we got to talking about that. And there's a, an entire spectrum of views. And, and you like, you weren't even there, Craig. I had, to, I had to do my best Craig impersonation. I didn't hold your end down very well. And then, you know, we, we, there we all were. And it started to... So I said, all right, predictions. Who will win? Where will we be this time next year? Or this time in two years, I guess it would be, right? When the dust settles. Um, and it got... We, we had a variety of thoughtful exchange. And just when I said, wait, I brought this up. I am the pastor. Um, It's probably in my self-interest not to blow up the church. Uh, Maybe we should back slowly out of this. And then two two of my friends said, no, this is good. We need to be able to talk like this. And as if what I think about electoral politics or the president or the former president or any of the prospective candidates could touch what we have and what's most important. And then another said, there's only a very small handful of things that I'll fight about. Jesus is in that space. This stuff isn't. We have to be able to talk about it. And I was like, Maybe that's how it's supposed to be. We're in John 17. We'll close here. Jesus said, Father, you granted your son authority. Authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, that's our solidarity. That's our unity that we come from a thousand places, cultures, faith traditions, places on the socioeconomic ladder, places in the world, that we are as different in this room as different can be. The invitation to be Jesus' church isn't saying, hey, everyone, come together for, from across the spectrum of your differences and can we just do it my way? Is that okay with you? It's let's look for Jesus' way. Let's listen first, speak second, learn from one another, not ask you to check your tradition, your experience, or your values at the door, but rather bring them, hold them loosely enough that we can learn from one another and let them season the soup. Because what unites us is living for Jesus. And I think often, thinking about my church experience growing up, we found false bases for unity, causes to coalesce around, to supplant and backfill 
the lack of a life with Jesus. And not knowing Jesus and doing this, we need something else, right? Some niche theological issue or some political candidate to gather in solidarity around, but not us, not you, not the future of those who would believe in Jesus. Jesus is our tie that binds. And some of us here this morning are like, yeah, I don't know that I am, am a part of that though. I need something else. I need some other people who are like, you can have my guns when you pry my cold dead fingers off of them or, or insert other lefty or righty political cliche. I need some others that think that because I got to have some reason to believe. Jesus Christ died on the cross so you and I can be forgiven and free from what has bound us, enslaved us, repressed us, and stolen life from us. Jesus Christ died so that you and I could live with him together so that we could be free to have relationship, to learn from one another, to grow, to experience not only what we've experienced, but what one another has experienced and not experiences it as a threat. Jesus died so that we could share life together with him. That's why living with Jesus and living in family are two sides of the same coin. If you'd stand with me, it's time for us to pray. I'd simply like to invite you. There's room in the family of God for you. You're like, you know, I've done the Christian religious thing. I've identified as a Christian like I've identified as a Democrat or a Republican or like I've identified as a Coloradan or an American. It's my culture identifier. But I don't know if I've lived with Jesus come home today. I keep my distance. I hear Pastor Daniel talk about groups and I think that's great for you all, but I have to maintain the facade that I'm with you all because if I get too close, you'll know that I don't think I'm hearing the same music you're hearing. You can come home today. You're like, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the mess that I've made of my life or the mess that was made of me. It's gonna take me three quarters of my life just to get unjacked up from the traumas of my childhood or of my church of yore. I get that, I'm so sorry that that was a part of your story. That's not okay. That's not okay with Jesus. That's why he died on the cross, not only so that we could be forgiven, but so that we could be healed. He said, behold, I'm making all things new. He'll work in your life to make your heart new, to make your relationships new, to make your ability to be vulnerable with other people new. It's a glorious life. Not only do we benefit from one another, we need each other to live the full abundant life that Jesus promised. He didn't come to take it from us and chain us to some straight and narrow. That's false religion. Flush that down the toilet. He came so that we could have life. So we're gonna pray. If you would, just bow your head and close your eyes. And I'd like to ask if that's you. With our heads bowed, just, to, just out of reverence for God, 
kind of single focus, single task for just a moment, and out of respect for one another. We are together, but this is a deeply personal and for many a deeply vulnerable point in the road. So I just want to ask if that's you, would you just put your hand in the air? You can stay right where you are. We're not going to call attention to you. We're not going to drag you up front or anything like that. I feel like I, I need to come home today. I've missed unity because maybe I've missed Jesus. Would you just put your hand in the air? I see you. I see you. I see you. I'm the only one looking at you. It's not like it's any, some dirty secret. It's just, it's vulnerable, surrendering our life, right? It's not for the faint of heart. It takes courage. Okay, thank you. I see you. What else? I see you. I'm nothing. I've got nothing you need. Jesus is everything. But he said, if you hear my voice, his voice, don't harden your heart today. Anyone else, as we start off this new time together, focusing on a call to unity, anyone else want to come home this morning? Maybe you're like, I've known Jesus, but I've wandered far. I've kind of tried to do it on my own, and I've made a mess of things. And now I've been trying to dig myself out of the hole so I could be presentable for Jesus. Like God helps those who help themselves so that, that's not true. God helps those who can't help themselves and who know it. Anyone else? Just, there's room for you. We'll wait for you for a minute. Okay, you can put your hands on. I'll tell you what. Can we all just open our hands like this? Just, this is like the international symbol of I surrender. I've got nothing and I'll receive. Would you pray this prayer with me? Let's all pray it together just in solidarity around Jesus. Just pray it after me. It's your faith, it's not your words. Heavenly Father, pray out loud. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you came to this world. In Jesus, you died on the cross so I could begin again. I confess I'm a sinner. And I need you to forgive me. And I ask you to come into my heart and guide me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. And teach me how to live a good life. Let me pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you that you have made us one. I thank you that you are making all things new. And as we respond anew to you and explore together the unity that you held out as the guiding star for your church. Would you meet us in